Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Nearly on time. So close. Just as a little treat for you all. Hello, welcome to the show. It's great to see you all. I can't see you all, actually. Just a lie, isn't it, really? But I can see your comments, and that matters. I can see what you think, because uh, we are live, which is great. Uh, we've got quite the show today. There was a lot to talk about in the, uh, given the burning skip, which is currently British society. There's quite a lot to, of uh, terrible things to talk about. We will do so as with much cheer as we can. Um, the problem is, is the material we've got, awful, um, but we're going to try and always, I suppose not being cheerful, but trying to encourage people to think that maybe as terrible and dire and actually quite catastrophic as things are, there are things people can do about them. Otherwise, we're just making people feel miserable for the sake of it. It seems a little bit futile. Um, but we are going to talk about some pretty grim things today. So I just want to be clear about that. Uh, later on in the show, speaking of which, we will be talking about an absolutely horrendous story, which is um, about child uh, asylum seekers who've been taken, uh, kidnapped by gangs. Um, absolutely gruesome story, to say the least. And we'll be talking about that. And the Home Office's uh, failures. Um, we're talking to Lauren Starkey, uh, who's a brilliant anti-trafficking social worker. The anti-trans moral panic, as you probably haven't have noticed, has not gone away. Um, and it continues to escalate, not least because of the standoff over Scotland's democratic decision to reform the gender recognition process. And then the, the attempts by the Conservative government, led by Rishi Sunak, to overturn that democratic decision and the impact that's having on trans people, not just in Scotland, but of course across the UK. So we've got the brilliant Katie Montgomery, who many of you will know and has been on the show uh, before. Um, before we bring in our first brilliant guest, who I think many of you will be more than aware of, uh, to talk about Nadim Zahari's tax affairs. And what it says more broadly, because we're not just going to talk about Nadim Zahari, as interesting as that is, um, I think there's a broader issues about tax avoidance and the nature of tax or alleged, sorry, I need to be careful what I say about Nadim Zahari because he's got a habit of threatening to sue everyone. <laughs> um, so we have to see, is it tax avoidance or not? That's why we've got the brilliant expert, Richard Murphy, uh, who knows this subject inside out better than anyone to talk about these particular issues to avoid a tedious exchange of legal letters between me and Nadim Zahari. Um, if you're watching live, do click on the YouTube link and press like and subscribe. That'd be really helpful. Um, you can support us um, by using Super Chat. I will read out all of your Super Chat. I will thank everybody at the end by name. Um, and um, I will put questions through Super Chat to the guests as well. Um, you keep this whole show on the road, the patreon.com forward slash Jones 84 We started having interviews again. We did one with Hajin Chang last week because people on Patreon asked us to, so we put questions to him. And we're starting up our documentaries again this beginning of next month, February. Yes. 
we'll decide what documentaries to do based on what you tell us to do on Patreon. That's what we did before. We've done lots from Tory Party Conference to insecure workers who work for Amazon, giving them a platform and a voice. So uh, gentrification, COVID, you name it. We've done a lot because of you. Um, yeah, please like, subscribe, and also podcast. Sorry, I always forget the podcast. If you're listening on the podcast, hey, hey, guys, we haven't forgotten you. You are a big part of the audience, so that's important not to, not to do. Let's bring in Richard Murphy, author, accountant, tax justice ex- person, writer, broadcaster, loads of things. It's a lot. You've got a lot of hats. Yeah. Which is great. Quite a lot of grey hair still, too. Well, you know... You know, they're there, they're there. I can, I'm just saying they're lurking. People are like, oh, he looks so young. He looks like Macaulay Culkin in Home Alone. Well, I'm just saying age. You can't define age, whatever. Um, okay, let's, uh, we're going to talk about um, Nadim Sahawi. So, um, so Nadim Sahawi, this is this um, allegations involving an offshore tax um, situation um, following the sale of YouGov, the polling company that he founded. And that he it's now come out that he had to pay HMRC a sum of money, a fine, um, a, part of a multi-million pound tax settlement. He claims the error was careless, not deliberate. Now, Dan Needle, a, a city lawyer and tax loop, has been really going at this uh, for quite a, quite a while. Could you just sum up, Richard, what the hell is happening here? Sum up kind of, because this has been rumbling on for a while, but it's only now that basically Nadim Zahari has kind of been... I mean, he's been threatening legal action against lots of people, including Dan Needle. What's the gist of what has actually happened and what Nadim Zahari has not been transparent about? Look, I'm going to walk a tightrope. We have to, because as you said, Nadim Zahari does seem keen on his legal letters and neither of us want one of those. But I think it's very unlikely now, because frankly, his reputation's in tatters. You know, what more damage could be done to him? But nonetheless, we'll be careful. He set up YouGov over 20 years ago, and he decided that although his partner owned his shares in his own name, Nadim Zahawi's shares ended up being owned by a company set up by Nadim Zahawi's father based in Gibraltar with the usual types of offshore structure around that, which were commonplace at the time I was starting my tax justice campaigning and talking about the terrible problems that tax havens created. And those shares remained in that company for many years. There were a number of sales of shares in YouGov over the years. Two were before 2010. Highly unlikely they've got anything to do with the current investigation. In 2018, the company owned by Nadim Zahawi's father sold all its remaining shares. And it's very likely, but we're guessing, I stress, that the tax investigation going on relates to the sale of those shares. And if we take what Nadim Zahawi says in his statement made yesterday, um, Saturday, um, then he says the revenue have suggested he was careless to record the ownership of all his shares, all the shares in the company belonging to his family in the name of his father's company, because it's pretty clear that the revenue have suggested that they think some of those shares very definitely should have belonged to Nadim Zahawi, but carelessly he forgot to record that fact 
And as a result, they demanded that he pay the tax due on the sale of those shares, which we now think comes to a sum of around 3.7 million, meaning that in all likelihood, he picked up a sum over 20 million for the sale of those shares or his part of those shares. And as a consequence, we also now believe he's paid a fine to HM Revenue and Customs, which is 30% of the tax. Well, 30% of 3.7 million would mean a fine of between 1.2 and 1.3 million, about which you might say, ouch. But in practice, that looks to be a pretty low tax. His team probably did a pretty good deal for him. Sorry, pretty low penalty. His team did a pretty good deal for him to manage to get away with a penalty that low with regard to something offshore these days. So he's settling over five million quid. And yet he has said throughout, I've always paid my tax at the right time. Um, no, that's not possible. When you have a settlement of this sort, let me be quite emphatic about that. Those two statements are irreconcilable. And he said that his, he's just been careless. Well, 30% tax penalty is on the borderline between where the revenue think you've been careless and where you've actually been moving into the area of de deliberately misleading. But it may be he offered full cooperation. We don't know here. So we're guessing and I'm not going to speculate. But I personally have never set up a company, let alone an offshore company, carelessly. And I've never given away the interest in a company to my father carelessly um, without consideration of what the consequences might be, especially if they had significant tax implications. But apparently he was completely careless about this. And he's asking us to believe that. Um, I personally don't believe he was careless. But that's my personal statement of belief. He can't sue me for a personal belief that I hold. It's interesting we're talking about um, the use of the libel laws uh, by a minister, Tory minister. He was obviously Chancellor of the Exchequer, now obviously is Minister Without Portfolio, but he's Tory Chair of the Conservative Party. It's very, very important we say that. Uh, he has been throwing his weight around to try and silence uh, scrutiny, and, and unless people had actually refused to be cowed by those threats, then we wouldn't actually have got to this point now of finding mm. out what actually happened. Is this, is this, so is it, to be clear, we don't know if this is tax avoidance. He, well, it can't be tax avoidance now because he he's he's paid this certain amount of money. But is it is it, we still don't know if it's exactly attempted tax avoidance. Is that still kind of a bit unsure? I think we can say pretty confidently that he attempted tax avoidance. Um, he put unnecessary steps into a transaction which had the consequence he thought because he must have put it on, or he must have failed to put this sale on his tax return. He thought it would result in him not paying tax, and he has. So he set up, I would suggest, a structure for tax, which tried to use offshore arrangements, tried to transfer the ownership of these shares into the hands of someone else, his father, who was almost certainly not domiciled in the UK and therefore could take advantage of the non-dom laws, and as a consequence, hoped that tax would not be paid. He was wrong in that hope. But one of the characteristics of tax avoidance is that you're working in the grey area between what is absolutely certain. For example, you've paid some money into your pension, providing you've met the limits, you will get tax relief. That's not tax avoidance. That's absolutely tax compliant. And tax evasion, which is where you deny everything and say nothing's happened to the revenue. He clearly wasn't tax evading. Let's be blunt about that. There's no question that he was actually trying to be compliant, but he was hoping that he could use the laws in a particular way to avoid a tax liability. And it's turned out 
He's got a tax liability. That, to me, is the classic definition of tax avoidance. And tax avoidance is not illegal. Let's be clear about it. There's nothing that we can say that he's done that's illegal. He tried to avoid a tax bill. He's failed to avoid a tax bill. And, and just so because people do get confused about tax avoidance and tax evasion, tax evasion is going against the letter of the law. Tax avoidance is going against the spirit, but legally in that it's trying to find ways of avoiding paying taxes that the legislation wasn't set up to do. Hey, you've been reading my stuff, Owen. That's pretty good. I like that. You've, edu All those you've educated me well over the years. <laughs> but you're right. I'm a murphy Tax evasion is breaking the law in all sorts of ways. Like, you know, the structure was illegal. It should never have been done. It wasn't legally possible. You never told anyone about it. You've not declared your taxes at all, blah, blah. These are evasion and they're commonplace. They happen throughout the economy. Nobody is suggesting he's done that. Absolutely clear. But he did set up a structure which was in that grey area um, where we don't really know precisely what the law is and where there's a risk. He took a risk. The risk hasn't turned out, out well for him. And, and again, to be clear here, that of a Venn diagram, moral, legal, not the same circle. And the point isn't it that that exactly. So the point isn't it that that what the likes of Nadim Zahari, who is objectively a very rich man, is a normal person can't do this because they don't have accountants for example, who can try and exploit, well, most people on PAYE anyway, but even self-employed people, the average self-employed person wouldn't be able to try and do these sorts of things. Look, to do this sort of thing, you've got to be willing to lash out quite a lot of money because it costs money to set up the structure. It costs money to run the structure. You've got to think that it's worth your while paying for all those accountants, for those lawyers, for all the services you're buying in Gibraltar over all those years with the hope that at the end of this, you'll save money. That's what he did. That's why he paid the money out. And he hoped he'd save money at the end of it. Well, they, I mean, let's be honest, Nadim Zahawi was in the public domain. They used the information in the public domain, looked at his tax return, I have little doubt, and said, hmm, Apparently, he sold YouGov. Apparently, it's not on his tax return. And so they would have started an investigation. Let's also be clear, and I've done a lot of tax investigations. I still do tax investigations. I've got one running right now. Uh, only one, but I've been doing them for 40 years. And um, they take a long time. Um, it's highly likely this has been going on for two or three years um, that they've been investigating this. It isn't a flash in the pan. It hasn't been solved overnight. It has probably taken two or three years to reach this settlement. The settlement is an interesting thing as well. Most people don't understand those. It's a contract. Literally, you sign a deal with the revenue. You accept you've made a mistake. You've negotiated how much tax you should have paid. And that is a negotiation because there aren't blacks and whites in this there are only shades of gray so he had negotiated that he owed tax on so many shares some still remaining attributed to his father they'd have negotiated the penalty and then he's paid up but all of that is a negotiated contractual settlement he didn't have to talk about it the revenue never will because this isn't a criminal issue at all it's just simply a civil contract but he will have had to admit by simply signing that contract that he got his tax wrong he can't say he got his tax right anymore because by signing the contract, he's saying I got it wrong and he accepted a penalty. So if he ever says again, I got my tax right over this issue. No, he's lying. And all those legal threats he put out and here hats off to Dan Needle. When Dan was in the city, he and I disagreed often on tax justice issues. Since he's left the city, Dan has become 
well, an enlightened character who now fights for tax justice. And I will, you know, they say heaven re um, rejoices over a sinner who repents, I think, something like that, once when I was dragged to church. Um, you know, Dan seems like a man who's repented and is doing a great job these days. So I, I will I acknowledge that. I love, a I love a redemption narrative arc. Let's listen, uh, just as a little treat, and don't say I don't treat you, let's listen to the intriguingly named James Cleverley, who's our foreign secretary. This is the question about whether the Chancellor, the man who is literally in charge of tax, was under investigation by HMRC over his taxes. And you don't know if that's true or not. I mean, that, that you can see how that looks, right? Well, as I say, the detail I have is the detail that Nadine has put out in his public statement. Um, and the point I've made is that this tax was due because he was a successful entrepreneur who grew a business from nothing. Um, you know, he came to this country with nothing, uh, as you know, his, his backstory, uh, escaping uh, 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 violence, persecution and possible death in Iraq, coming to this country uh, with nothing, um, unable to speak English. And he built a very, very successful uh, company uh, employing people, and that is why these uh, that is why these uh, um, taxes were due. Uh, and ultimately, he, in you know, uh, you know conversation with HMRC, uh, came to uh, came to the arrangement whereby those taxes were were fully paid. Sorry, what do you think about that then, Richard? Oh, come on. That was complete nonsense. He came to the, this country at the age of 10 for a start. He didn't come here with nothing. Every 10 year old's got nothing except what their parents give them. So come on. That's in, you know the backstory thing. Relying on that as if he arrived a budding entrepreneur at the age of 10. No, not true. Um, he wasn't briefed on this, he claims. Look, that was his job to be briefed on this. <laughs> Um, the claims he makes, it's all because he was a successful entrepreneur that he owes the tax. No, he owes the tax now because he didn't put it on his tax return in the right place at the right time. He could have done so. That's the critical point. He could have declared the tax owing on his tax return at the right time. He wouldn't have a problem now. I mean, um, why wouldn't he have done? He, th this was a tax rate, which I mean, probably quite a complex tax rate for various technical reasons, but it would be an under 20%. And he's made many millions. Why not accept the tax and walk on? But that's not enough. So I'm sorry, he's ignoring the moral dimension to this. He's ignoring the offshore dimension to this. He's ignoring the fact that clearly he has now admitted in the contract with the revenue he's got it wrong. And he's pretending that this was all down to this great entrepreneur. But actually, that great entrepreneur was careless enough to not record the ownership of his shares in the company he created, which I find implausible. It's never happened in any company I've ever been involved in setting up. And as an accountant, I've been involved in setting up a lot of companies over the years. Is it, so disturbing, that it. He, is it disturbing that he may be negotiating with HMRC when he's Chancellor of the Exchequer? Absolutely extraordinary. He should never have allowed himself to become Chancellor of the Exchequer. He had a conflict of interest, which should clearly have ruled him out. It should clearly have ruled out his appointment because we know that Boris Johnson was advised that there was a conflict of interest here. Of course, he should never have gone to the Exchequer. Should he have held any ministerial office? Well, that's a good question because the potential to embarrass the government could have existed in any post. But as Chancellor, that should never have happened. And the other thing is, other ministers should frankly be honest. 
Um, who else? Who's going out on the ministerial round tomorrow morning to take the next round of brickbats on this? Are they going to be able to find anyone willing to take another round? I mean, it is really time that this government talks straight. I lived through the major years um, and you know, very much lived through those years. I remember them far too uncomfortably. And this feels so like the sleaze that went on then of a dying Tory government. And God, I hope it's a dying Tory government. Let's be honest about it. But mm -hmm. it just is another variation on how Tories in office end up always appearing to have sleaze dominating their agenda. Sunak can't recover from this. And nor can Nadim Zahawi. I mean, bluntly, another couple of days. He's a goner. Can you imagine this lasting until Wednesday lunchtime and question time? No, I think 10.30 Wednesday morning, Nadim Zahawi will have gone. Do you think, just finally, I mean, because obviously this has become about the political survival of Nadim Zahari, and you can tell already they're preparing the grounds for him to uh, be thrown under the bus. Just more broadly, just finally, what does this say about the nature of our tax system and how it basically is rigged maybe in favour of some at the expense of others? We massively underinvest in our tax system. Um, I've written a thread this morning, well, this this weekend, sorry, about the fact that we need to perhaps invest another billion pounds in our tax system to actually collect tax from those who owe it. It's claimed that there's 42 billion unpaid a year in the UK in tax, and that will mainly be by people who are running their own companies, running their own businesses, and not paying what's owed by them. It's not by people on PAY, and it's not a little bit of cash in hand by somebody who sells the old thing on eBay. This is organised businesses, in particular companies that are set up that never declare their existence and are used for fraud. And I wrote a piece of legislation in 2014 for the late Michael Meacher MP, a Labour MP, um, left-wing Labour MP, I admit, and I wrote a legislation, and it simply said, UK banks should tell HM Revenue and Customs when they work for a company in the UK and how much money is banked in that company's bank account each year, so the revenue will know when they get a set of accounts, whether, broadly speaking, those accounts are right or not. That was talked out of the House of Commons by somebody called Jacob Rees-Mogg, who said, we don't want to collect more tax, do we? Um, I was literally, Michael was literally arguing to enforce tax law, but they didn't want to do that. The Tories talked out a sensible piece of very simple legislation that would have improved the chances of the right amount of tax being paid. We don't have the powers. The revenue are left unable to pick on the real frauds. They can only pick on the simple cases, which tend to be by people with lower income. And odd exceptions apart, and Nadim Sahawi is one of those, people who set up complex, difficult tax systems are not caught. And that's got to be wrong. We need to invest in actually investing in tax because it's the bedrock of our society. If we don't get tax right, we don't get any of the other relationships between government and people in this country right. And that's why I always believe tax justice has been critical because we have to use tax for the benefit of society at large. And we could, and we're not doing it properly because we don't understand it properly. And we have far too many ministers who don't believe that paying tax is the right thing to do. Richard, I would be lost at sea on tax without you, and I'm sure huge numbers of people would be as well. You've had such a massive contribution, which can't be understated in terms of tax justice and actually changing things for the better. But obviously, we've got a long way to go, and your work will continue to be essential in that regard. So do, if you're not already following Richard Murphy on Twitter, do do so. And um just share his work and read his work and his videos and all the rest of it. Richard, thanks as ever. Honestly, really, really appreciate it. And I'll speak to you soon. Thank you. Good to see you. Great stuff.
Great stuff from Richard as ever. Um, we will be later, as I've said, talking about this truly horrendous story, um, which is about uh, child refugees, child asylum seekers who've been kidnapped from a home office hotel. Um, we're talking here, of course, about child trafficking by criminal gangs. Really is an absolutely horrendous story and something which needs as much attention as possible. So we'll be talking um, later with the brilliant Lauren Starkey, who will tell us in depth about what this what's happened um, and what this says and, and what has to now happen from here on in. Uh, if you're watching live, do you click, or if you're watching just on YouTube, full stop, please press like and subscribe. Also on Facebook, if you just refuse to come to YouTube, I'm not going to force you. Just do, you do you. Just press like though and share, spread the word. We've got some very, very important stuff that we're talking to about today. Oh, kind of speaking more. Let's bring in Katie Montgomery, the brilliant Katie Montgomery, who has been on the show before because she's great. So we just keep just keep dragging her on. Um, Kate, Kate Montgomery. Uh, although Kate, Katie, you are muting yourself. I will not. You're being silenced. Silent, Hi. <laughs> Sorry, everyone. <laughs> yeah, this is cancel culture in operation here. People can't. Yeah, maybe I'll get an article in the Times tomorrow. That'd be great. <laughs> And the Daily Mail and the uh, Telegraph and the, yeah. the Fulcher Bank um, about how silenced you are. Um, Katie uh, Montgomery is a brilliant um, trans activist, YouTuber, all sorts of broadcaster. Um, at the moment, I've seen you doing Fighting the Good Fight, um, Thanks, trying yeah. to educate just people about in, in the midst of obviously an anti-trans moral panic, which is not fun. Um Let's just start. Look, in terms of Scotland, so for those who, I mean, I'm sure most people watching and listening to us know Scotland. Um, in Scotland, you had uh, the SNP, the Greens, the Labour Party and the Lib Dems, 2021, all put manifesto commitments to reform the gender recognition procedure in Scotland to demedicalise it um, in line with lots of other countries. In fact, 13 or 14 other countries which have already done so. It's more than 18. Year. Yeah, in fact, why am I telling what you just said? <laughs> Right. Yeah. So I think, what... yeah, yeah I think the, the first thing to like say really is what this Gender Recognition Act thing is. So we had a law in 2004, which passed called the Gender Recognition Act in the UK and, and Scotland has their own devolved power over this. And that's an important part going forwards. Um, and this law allows you to change, uh, get a certificate called a Gender Recognition Certificate, and that allows you to then change your birth certificate. And obviously you can use your birth certificate for some things in your life, like getting married, uh, on your death certificate, um, applying for a pension, th that kind of stuff. And at the time in 2004, uh, it being used for marriage was an important thing because we didn't have gay marriage. Um, so it allowed straight trans people to get married, but obviously not the gay ones. But since then we passed gay marriage. So that part became less important, but it was still important because in your vows, in some places, they have to use the gender on your birth certificate. So. As a trans person getting married, you would want to get one of these certificates so that you can have, you know, a, a good day on your wedding. Um, so the issue with this law was that it is completely impractical and basically impossible to get one of these certificates, not because, uh, you know, people aren't trans enough or they don't fit the thing, but because there are so many hurdles to it. You need two psychologist evaluations. So I, I, I got one last year needed uh, two different psychologist evaluations, uh, a diagnosis of gender dysphoria, like some written description of every surgery I'd ever had, a written description of my genitals, um, this thing saying that I had like good makeup and hair, like just complete 
ridiculous stuff. Uh, I ended up having to submit 45 pages of evidence. And this, uh, th this was the earliest point I could get it in my transition. And it was only last year, like, you know, years and years in when I'd, I had already changed my passport and my driving license and my bank details, my medical records, everything else had been changed for, you know, over half a decade. Um, so this, this law was just kind of a good first step at the time, but rubbish in practice. And it was so bad that an estimate of around 1% of trans people in the country were able or did get a gender recognition certificate. So basically the UK government in 2016 with Theresa May said, oh, we're gonna reform this. Um, and we then got the Boris Johnson government and decided to do a culture war. And they decided they had a big public consultation. The, they had a big inquiry and they decided, yes, the best thing to do is reform this. All of the women's groups, all of the LGBT groups, also, well, most of them supported it. And then they just dropped it. But then Scotland said, OK, well, we're going to do our own one. Um, you know, we're going to reform our version of it. And like you said, all of well, most of the parties um, put it in their manifestos and uh, they had another um, uh, consultation. They had this is one of the most consulted upon pieces of legislation like in history. Uh, it took six years and they finally got it to the stage in Parliament where they had to debate. And then the uh, opposition to it um, brought in something like 200 amendments, like just trying to kill it. Like it's re real bad faith stuff. No, uh, this wasn't just like an ordinary bill. This was like some kind of, um, I mean, it's ordinary in the fact that the changes make it quite small. The changes it's going to make it quite small, but the opposition to it was just crazy. And, and as we've seen, it's been even crazier since, but it passed. And what passing means is they removed some of these restrictions uh, that was previously on the bill. So you no longer have to wait years and years and years to go through the NHS system to get a, a diagnosis from an NHS doctor um, before you're allowed to up, get a gender recognition certificate. Um, they made it available to 16-year-olds. Um, they, you know, reduced the fee, made the, just the whole process a lot easier and more sensible. And importantly, not only brought it into line with uh, 18 plus other countries around the world, including many in Europe, like Belgium and Ireland and, um, you know, some of our closest neighbours, but also bringing it in line with our other important documents like passports and driving licence and, you know, everything else that you actually use in your day to day life. And I'm just going to hammer home this again, like the most important thing. There's been a huge backlash to this. But when you ask people what the concerns are, why, why are you opposing this law? When you see what the you know Sc Scottish Conservative Party was saying and the UK Conservative Party are saying their issues with it are, they say, oh, we're worried about women's spaces and we're worried about women's sports and, you know, this kind of thing. But the gender recognition factually does not like affect those things. You do not need a gender recognition certificate to use the toilets. You don't need it to use the showers. You don't need it for, for you know, for any of these things. That's all covered by the Equality Act 2010. It's a different law that isn't changing. Um, and if you're wondering, you know, well, what do I do? Why, you know, what is this? Just think through your life. When have you had to use your birth certificate? How many times in your life have you had to use your birth certificate? Almost never. But occasionally you do. And when you do, it's quite important that it has the right details on it. And that's that's what we want. Trans people just want the same, oh, our documents are correct, that everyone else in the country has. Um, hopefully it's a good summary. <laughs>
That's a very, very, very good summary. Very to the point. Much better than than, than I was babbling on there as well. Um, I mean, the point, Kezia Dugdale, who's the former leader of the Scottish Labour Party, pointed out that, you can see my Wi-Fi is a bit dodgy there, but we will persevere, um, that uh, a combined population of 350 million um, countries have had this law for a very long time, for, for a long time in many cases, from Ireland yeah. to Argentina. If there was cases of, you know, this reform causing some of the... The, the problems that the, anti, the the opponents were talking about, we would hear nothing else that they haven't been oh, able yeah. to do that, have they? The, I mean, that was noted in the, um, like, Scottish government obviously did, um, like, safeguarding reviews and, and analyses of, of all the opposition points and stuff. And something that I thought was really scathing of them, and it was mentioned a few times, I can't remember what the most official person saying this was, but it was said a few times in official documentation that the opposition to this, doesn't seem to have any evidence and we've asked them for evidence and you know we've really pressed this and they still haven't provided any and like you say this kind of you know 350 million or whatever people living in countries with a similar law and and like in the case of Argentina they passed it in 2012 so that's been now in place for over a decade and we do have what we do have evidence for is that it has made trans people's lives a bit easier in those countries. Uh, so it is very trivial to find that evidence. So yeah, why why don't they have any evidence? Well, the evidence, the reason they don't have any is because there isn't any. And and it's not just, oh, there's no evidence, because maybe they could say, oh well, it's hard to get the evidence. But the thing is, people say, oh, well, it might be open to exploitation. But and and it's very easy to say that and then just step back and and have people worry and then that's kind of all the argument you need to make. But the, the yeah. challenge that is exploit to do what? Like what? Just if we just imagine the worst case scenario, you know, some uh, abusive, um, you know, cis man who just wants to exploit everything and he just wants to harm women. What can they do with a gender recognition certificate, which they would, by the way, have to break the law to get? Um, which is an extra punishment on top of whatever else they achieve. Well, what they can do is they can get married as a woman. They could have female on their death certificate. Uh, they could, you know, have their tax records updated to female. And that's it. So what what exploitation are we actually fearing? That someone's going to have a gay wedding when they're actually straight? I mean, that's, that's what's at, on, at stake here, really. Basically, bizarre cultural appropriation where people just have gay marriages for under <laughs> false pretenses. Let's listen to what Nicola Sturgeon, who's, of course, the first minister of Scotland. Let's just hear what she had to say. When we started this, uh, the UK government was also consulting on a similar proposal. 2018, you can go back and look at that. In that consultation, the UK government said the issue of gender recognition is devolved to the Scottish Parliament. Scotland can have a separate system uh, if it so chooses. What, what has changed about that they did not raise these concerns mm -hmm. uh, with us directly during the uh, the process of this bill they wait till after so, the Scottish Parliament's passed it and they exercise so, so not what, something to take it to court but a veto it's outrageous so and what it's are you in going principle to do? So, so what are you going to do can you confirm that you're going to seek a judicial review um I've already said we will do everything to uh, stand up for and defend the legislation the UK government are doing this for two reasons and frankly it's got nothing to do with concerns about the Equality Act firstly shamefully, disgracefully, they're trying to stoke a culture war on the back of one of the most vulnerable groups in our society because they somehow think that plays well with their, their base well, ahead of the general election. they would, of course, election. dispute that very of course strongly, would dispute it, but, but you can get, you can get them on to dispute it. I know that, right? but they're stoking a culture war. And secondly, this is part of a pattern 
of undermining and delegitimising, seeking to undermine and delegitimise the Scottish Parliament. So the issues are really important and I feel very strongly uh, that trans people should not be weaponised. I mean, the, the really important, lots of important points you make there, but this idea that Scotland has tried to trigger some sort of constitutional crisis for the sake of furthering independence, this consultation started under the Scottish government about, what, back in 2016, about seven years ago. Uh, they had two public consultations, but at the time, the British government under Theresa May essentially had the same position. So they, yeah. they went through the biggest consultation in history, and what's happened is the, the position of the British government has changed. But that's, they're just gaslighting on this, aren't they? Because this is just not what happened. Yeah, and uh, I mean, it, Nicola Sturgeon is totally right there to say that this is about culture war and this is about them a bigger thing during um, Scotland. Because, you know, you can say, oh, well, what concerns and stuff, but there aren't, there might be legal concerns, but there's no actual real legal argument here. And there's no, you know, justified concern if you look at the actual issues. Um, yeah, I, I do feel like trans people are being used as like some kind of pawn piece in the political game here because there's, you know, the, the government isn't making any good arguments. There isn't, there isn't really anything here. <clears throat> Rachel Rees here says the Daily Mail, Telegraph, The Times, GB News, Guardian, and even the BBC have turbocharged their negative reporting on trans rights. Absolutely frightening. Before I'm reported yeah. to my boss, this I'm just reading out the comments which people leave to the show. I can't censor people. Um, I mean, it's true, isn't it? What we're seeing here is in the same way in the 1980s and the 1990s, you got a toxic moral panic about gay and bisexual men being sexual predators, threats to children, brainwashers of children, defiers of the laws of biology, a perverse mental, a perverse <laughs> fetish, a mental illness. It's just the same things. Oh, the, same. the difference is they're saying, no, no, this oh. one's different though. That's what they're oh, doing. It's different this time. Yeah. And like lots of the commentators in these newspapers are literally writing that. They're like, I just saw one recently. Maybe I won't say the name of the person, but there's one yesterday where the, this writer has said, um, it's, it's different this time. That was pretty much the headline. Like, oh, yeah, you know, getting rid of Section 28 was good. But this time fighting against LGBT rights is the right thing to do. It's like a phrase that I try and say all the time is pretty much all transphobia is recycled homophobia. Like politically, that's that's the case. And just on that, I think now a lot of most people, for example, if they think of Section 28, which just to be clear, I'm going to talk about Section 28 a bit more in a minute, actually. To be that, those who don't know, I'm sure you do, but Margaret Thatcher's government, in attempt to stoke a culture war using bigotry, very widespread bigotry against um, uh, gay and bisexual people in the 1980s, introduced legislation to prevent the so-called promotion of homosexuality in schools and other public bodies. People like ourselves, we we didn't have LGBTQ education. Well, you're younger than me, so I'm not sure how that works. But, but no, I didn't I have LGBTQ. Oh, we didn't know. We did. I mean, the only LGBT education I got was being told by a teacher that anal sex was unnatural. Um, so, you know, and, you know, rampant homophobia at the school. Um, yeah. So, you know, that's what they introduced. And people now think, well, you know, well, everyone would, you know, obviously we would have opposed that. And it's the same with equalization of the age of consent. Well, just to show that, just to prove this, because I think people now think, well, back then I'd, I'd have opposed that. I'd have been one of those people oppose it, really. Section 28, this is 2000. This is 2000. Forget it. Friends is nearly finished, just to put that in perspective where we're at. <laughs> I can't remember when did Friends end, 2003. Anyway, the government is planning to end the law, Section 28. Which of these two statements come closest to your view? 
The ban should remain and schools should not be allowed to promote homosexuality, 54%. The ban should end and schools should be free to decide whether to promote homosexuality. The framing on this is infuriating. But that's the just unreal. 54% oppose the repeal. Here's another one. Age of consent gets worse. 2000, the government is committed to reducing the age of consent for homosexuals from 18 to 16. Do you think this policy is right or wrong? Right, 27%. Wrong. 66% of the British population yeah. in 2000 opposed equalization. Of the age of and you know what? They believe when they say they thought gay rights was a threat to children, which is what they said, they believed that. But their sincerity mm. is not an excuse. And everybody recognizes that now. Yeah, it, it's, it's exactly the same thing. But look, I think it's, it's important to point out like the media's massive role in both the gay moral panic and now the trans one. Uh, like the framing on those two questions where they say, oh, do you believe that schools should be allowed to promote homosexuality? Like, that isn't what's happening. Schools aren't promoting it. That I mean, like when you go promoting for like a gig or something, like you should come to this because it's really good. This is my, you know, great event. You should come see this. When it's like you're promoting homosexuality, they make it sound like you're trying to sign people up for the army. Like, hey, boys, do you want to like come and be gay? But obviously that's, that's nonsense. But that that kind of framing makes people think like oh i don't know like i don't have anything against gay people but i don't want them to to promote it onto and it's the same they thing what they do with this like uh the debate around the gender recognition act reform they say things like should a man be allowed to just put on a dress and go into the women's toilet and and people are like oh, oh i don't know and like but that's nothing to do with the gender recognition act reform and you've conjured up an image that is going to scare people and takes away the real context, which is, you know, if you want to talk about gender recognition at reform, it should, the question should be, should trans people have to wait two years to get a certificate in order to get married and die in dignity like everyone else? Or even trans people have been using the toilets with you your entire life. Should we ban them? We have no evidence to support that this would affect anything. You know, that's the framing. That would be like the true context if you if you provide it to then people would answer different if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery think again juvederm volux xc is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime even better this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment no maintenance required improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with juvederm volux xc for important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
I mean, as Mark Kemp Plus says, in 987, I walked past the Thatcher billboard saying Labour would turn daughters into lesbians. Is current transphobia in government as bad as homophobia in the 1980s? Again, I think people forget what just how intense. I mean, I think, you know, that those anti-gay moral panics were and how much. Because in, in um, 1987, only 11% of people, according to the British Social Attitude Survey, thought homosexuality wasn't wrong at all. So 11%, those were the allies. And people people forget because they think it's that everyone now thinks they'd have been on the right side, but when yeah. you're just being bombarded with examples of predatory gay people who do exist, of course, we're gay pedophiles. The Catholic people talk about yeah. the Catholic Church, the Scouts, if they, and they're visceral about their kids. They believed it; it was sincere. But it doesn't make it any more right, then. Yeah, and I I do think that um, you know the the pan, the moral panic is just as horrible. I, you know, I didn't live, I wasn't alive in the early 80s or anything, so I didn't live for it. So it's it's hard for me to say. But looking at examples, I mean, some of the headlines are, are, are the same. And we, we have things like children sacrificed to appease trans lobby and stuff, you know, is one of the kind of famous, more crazy headlines. And th there's just talks, all kinds of things like this Gender Recognition Act reform is about this little minor change about some admin stuff. But then you have politicians going into the House of Commons and saying, oh, maybe we should ban all trans people from all public spaces, or maybe we should ban healthcare for everyone under 25. You know, it's so extreme. It's And it's it's terrifying for trans people who live in the UK to see, like, we, we're watching the Rishi Sunak government use, like, the nuclear option on the Scottish government, potentially leading us down the path to tearing apart the union, um, which you may support or, or oppose, but that is where this is going over this minor thing like how if we did if scotland did leave how much worse is it going to get for trans people in the uk to prop up the tory culture war nonsense yes. i'll come on to that yeah. in terms of i'll ask you about a a story in vice news um which was out last week okay. i mean before i do just because i'm just again on i mean this is just uh, should i i mean part of me is like do i bother talking about her judy bindle judy bindle for those who don't know okay. is obsessed that's who I was talking about earlier when I didn't say who. I know. And I'm like, <laughs> because also she talks about me all the time. She's literally, yeah, she tweets she loves about you. me hundreds, hundreds of times. She she calls me Talconex because <laughs> she thinks it's funny, which is an appropriation of a term from African-American women. Uh, so it's completely tasteless, to be honest with you. If it, otherwise, mm. it'd be quite funny. She calls us but the trans-Taliban. Calls... <laughs> I was going to say, or queer. I, I mean, the other thing is queer ISIS. And I'm sorry. But queer ISIS, ISIS yeah. Queer ISIS. I mean, it's like, ISIS and the Taliban slaughter queer people. How dare yeah. she? She's just in place. But she said that, I mean, she, I just say, because she said, why do people in this case, Owen Jones, a gay man by virtue of his age, he was not involved in the long fight against Section 28. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. I've got no experience in Section 28, having lived under it. Absolutely unbelievable person but the point there is i just i didn't just want to raise that she talks about how you know decried the fact you know she's saying there is no comparison it's different between the issue how of how is it different well it's, it's interesting because she wrote an article in um for the guardian i'm afraid in 2001 yeah. um which was talking about how gay men need to disown pedophilia within their ranks that was her contribution during the section 28 debate she wrote some article in 2004 for The Guardian saying, like, gender benders fuck off, basically, whatever that meant, and, like, men who cut off their cocks and over, like, all this kind of stuff. You know, like, uh, pretty grim. Yeah. <laughs> um, just so we don't get Julie Bindle 
yelling at us. I'm sure. I mean, it was an absolutely outrageous article. I can't remember the exact context, but it was a, as if it was just very, very offensive about trans people. And she said some absolutely terrible, terrible things um, in them. So do look up if you want to see people. Julie Bindle, Guardian, 2004. It's not. It's it's not good. In terms of the plight of trans people, trans people say they're leaving England because of nonstop transphobia. This was an article by Ben Hunt in Vice News. Just tell us just how serious that actually is. Yeah, I mean, obviously, to, to even say that, I think there's a sort of discussion about this in the trans community because there are a lot of trans people saying that. And, and it is something that I have felt. In fact, for me, um, the reason I got my gender recognition certificate was in case I needed to leave the country. That was that was the main motivation. I, I might get married one day. I, I'm a feminist, so I'm not sure if I want to you know, support the institution of marriage or whatever. But it's a possibility. And also, I suspect one day that I might die and I don't want my family to have to go through all this admin where it won't match up with any of my documents and, and have to go through a funeral or maybe inquiry process, which would you know, be very stressful. But in, in the end, the main thing that got me going was just thinking, well, what you know, what's happening in this country is, is terrifying. And if they start, if there's I have a few lines in the sand, you know, if they come for our passports like they did in Hungary, um, or if they start doing bathroom bills like they did in the USA, uh, that's when I will go. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, loads of trans people I've talked to have said that some have already left, um, some have plans uh, just in case. But the discussion in the trans community is the people you hear saying that are obviously the ones who are more privileged because I, I am in a position where if I had to, I could leave the country. I have a job that, you know, could I could do in other countries. Um, I, I'm in a situation financially where I could do that. I have, I have contacts in other countries and all this kind of stuff. Um, and I'm able-bodied and stuff. A lot of trans people aren't. Trans people are more likely to be homeless. One in four trans people in the UK experience homelessness at some point in their life uh, compared to less than 1% of cis people. And, and they don't have an option to leave the country if if we start having you know rights take us, taken away sort of wholesale from us. Um, which is what a lot of these gender critical people explicitly want. Um, so it's just a really grim situation because as well, me just talking about this, I kind of feel guilty because I do know that, you know, trans people are are terrified. And if we all start saying, oh, well, maybe it's time to leave the country and they can't, like how terrifying is that for them to hear that? Hear that? Um, so I guess what I would say is I do have that plan vaguely in the back of my mind. It's not something I'm about to do. Um, and I don't think trans people should panic for that right now. But I do think that maybe if we got another Tory government or if Keir Starmer decided to pivot the Labour Party to be gender critical and anti-trans, then it could easily come to it. Um, oh, oh, so, I'm going to ask yes. you about um, Labour in a second. I just wanted as yeah. well, just because you raised the article. I mean, just content warning here. It's actually quite grim. But just the yes, article, just 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 for accuracy reasons, just wanted to just yes, read please. just what came get the, get the words right. No, no, exactly. But it's, it's actually just really bad. Um, Judy Bindle wrote for the Guardian: "Gender benders beware" was the headline, um, yeah. and she wrote in it. Um, um, also, those who transition seem to become stereotypical in their appearance. Fuck me shoes and bird's nest hair for the boys, beers, muscles and tattoos for the girls. Think about a world inhabited just by transsexuals. It would look like the set of Greece. She also said... Um, <laughs> That's um, so stupid. 
to go back to my five men in the toilet, I don't have a problem with men disposing of their genitals, but it does not make them women yeah, the same way that shoving a bit of vacuum hose down your five oh ones does not make you a man. It's just she's just horrible. I'm sorry, so, she's so, just a horrible person. So she's horrible. Vile. Um, I do think it's funny, like that. This has been brought up while I've come on your show. I'm wearing a T-shirt of a Canadian technical death metal band called Archspire, which I do do recommend if anyone's into that music. And this this is a stereotypical transsexual look for anyone who's wondering. Um, death metal and uh, yeah. Where's, where's bird's nest hair? <laughs> Uh, no bird's nest hair, which Julie Bindle thinks is a, is, is a must, apparently. Um, the other thing is, yeah, so in terms of Labour, now Labour um, got their MPs to abstain on the issue of Scottish democracy in terms of they, the, the Scottish Labour voted for this legislation. I think we should just be very clear about that. But in Westminster, they didn't. And I've also been told by a, a senior Labour source today that Labour is considering either voting with the Tories or abstaining on withdrawing recognition from gender recognition certificates from other countries like Ireland, for example, uh, like Luxembourg, like New Zealand and Argentina. What's your what's your take on that? I think that would be uh, I mean, this is this is so extreme. So obviously, when we're talking about attacks on trans rights, there's there's loads of different things going on. There's stuff going on internationally and there's stuff going on here. And there's things like the media and publishing horrible articles like that Julie Bindle one we just looked at. There's things like, um, you know, the people in parliament lying about us and there's things like them blocking the Gender Recognition Act reform. But as yet, during the moral panic, we haven't lost like a solid legal right from a change in parliament. There's been court cases where they've clarified things and hasn't always gone in our favour. But we haven't had them repeal the Equality Act or repeal the Gender Recognition Act or, or something like that, which would then take actual meaningful rights away from us. If they were to change this uh, list of countries they accept, that would take rights away from people. So that would be, a, a, you know, it's a real major attack. This would say to these other countries, like countries in Europe, as well as like our closest neighbours, like Ireland and Belgium, this would say to them, we're not going to respect your citizens like your you know your people who live in our country uh, i feel like it's like an international sign that they are attacking lgbt rights generally um which is terrifying but also this is another one of those things where it just seems so pointlessly spiteful for what it would actually achieve so the people who we're talking about here are ones from you know 18 or so countries around the world so it's already narrowing it down who live in the UK, who are in a situation where they have a gender recognition certificate for their country that they need to show to the UK government for some reason. Because a lot of the time, if I was to move to Netherlands or, or even if I was to move to you know somewhere like North Korea, whatever, <clears throat> I would take my birth certificate and I wouldn't show them I had a gender recognition certificate. Why, you know, why would I tell them? I wouldn't tell the them I was trans. I would just say, here's my birth certificate. It's got an F on it. That's all you need to know. So this this is only gonna this will affect people and some people would lose their rights over it. But it would it would be tens or hundreds of people affected. And what it would do is it would take away their dignity in marriage and death. Like what is the point in this? What is their signaling to the whole world? Oh we are taking rights away from international trans people here. For literally no reason, uh, like no one benefits from this. Um, mm. It's just just big politics stuff. It, it's just they've decided that hurting trans people might get them votes. They're going to be decimated at the next election, so they've got to do something. 
and Labour are useless. I, I, I don't know. I'm so frustrated with it. Um, yeah, Which grim. is why David Barwata here says Labour's shown itself to be an enemy with Kira's leader. How can any LGBTQ person justifiably vote for Labour in its current form? I have to say, I know lots of LGBTQ people wrestling with their conscience over that, myself um, included. And we'll have to see what LGBT, particularly LGBTQ MPs, or no trans, openly trans Labour MPs, over half the rebels were LGBTQ. Um, I noted mm. uh, the other day. Um, but it'll be interesting to see what LGBTQ Labour politicians do. Uh, it'll be interesting what LGBT Labour do. Uh, traditionally, they've always been quite loyal to um, this kind of Labour, the Labour leadership, but actually they've increasingly been making more welcome noises. So we'll see what happens there. Yeah. Um, so we'll, we'll have to see. But Katie, honestly, it's just great as ever to have you on and just to describe what's happening in, in really gruesome times. You've been, I've seen you doing lots of, including you did, what's it called? That new, the new, um, the news agents. Yeah. Oh yeah. News yeah. agents. Yeah. Yeah. For example. Go check that out. That was good. It was, you were very good. <laughs> we're very lucky to have you. Uh, but do you follow Katie, obviously on uh, Twitter. You're, it's just. And YouTube. Oh, and YouTube. That's more important. Sorry. Everyone. Yeah. So Subscribe now immediately to Katie Montgomery's um, YouTube channel. That's what you should do. So, yeah, just my name, same on Twitter. And then my newest show is coming back out. Well, it's, it's like season four is coming out maybe next month. So, so oh, hold yeah. on. If I do, if I add banner, let me see if I've done this right. Hold on. Have I? Oh, no, I haven't done it. Here, here we go. Come on. I've got, I, this is, hold on. Here we go. Show like that. Oh, no, it's an IE, isn't yeah. it? No, IE. <laughs> it is IE. I thought it was. Let me try again. Honestly, what was wrong with me? Jesus Christ. Okay. There we go. And Yay. then I can make it... Can I make it scroll around? Oh, no, I can just do that. There we go. Just everyone, okay. Katie Montgomery, for those listening on the podcast, sorry about that. You don't know what I'm doing at the moment. It's Katie with a Y. <laughs> Making a mess. Katie with a Y. And then Montgomery, M-O-N-T-G-O-M-E-R-I-E. So go and subscribe immediately to Katie's YouTube channel. Watch Thank you. All her videos and share them around <laughs> willy-nilly. Brilliant stuff, Katie. Thanks so much as ever. Lots of love and um, speak to you in a bit. Yeah, thanks for having me. See you, Great stuff. Now let's bring in Lauren because I kept you waiting, Lauren. I'm so, so sorry. It's great to see you, Lauren. Lauren is a brilliant Hi. social worker and a campaigner against trafficking. How are you doing? I'm all right. How are you doing? Very, very well. Well, look, this is a really really disturbing and horrifying story which is about um child asylum seekers being kidnapped from a home office hotel can you just quickly just describe exactly what's happened here so what's happened is kent county council alongside a couple of other councils at the time had enough unaccompanied children in their care that they felt they couldn't take in any more and adequately care for them so they said we are refusing to take any more unaccompanied minors into our care and they batted that back to the Home Office and said, this is your responsibility now. The Home Office responded in a way I don't think anyone could possibly have seen coming, which was they contracted a bunch of hotels across the South Coast and just effectively dumped these children there. Um, um, one of the ones that became kind of a bit of a flashpoint for this very early on in the summer of 2021 is, is one that was in Brighton. Um, and the location of which was unfortunately made public by several very irresponsible publications. And many of us were raising concerns right from the start. We were having meetings with the Home Office, open letters were written, concerns were raised, safeguarding referrals were made saying, 
this is wildly inappropriate. It's unlawful and it's unsafe. And these children are at extreme risk of being picked up and trafficked from these hotels. The Home Office ignored us um, over and over and over again and continued to keep these children in these hotels. So, you know, my point of view, for example, is the practice overall is what is is completely unlawful and shouldn't be happening but at the very least the moment the location of a hotel was made public that's housing vulnerable children it needs to be shut down you know get them out but the home office didn't so you had things like britain first turning up with their video recorders and filming these children in these hotels who were newly arrived absolutely traumatized they were being provided with below substandard you know they were being given prison issue tracksuits to wear whilst they were in the hotels and all this kind of thing and inevitably it's it's kind of the world's most horrifying I told you so everything we said would happen has now happened so what's come out in this article that's been written in the Guardian yesterday is traffickers are arriving and picking these children up and so what we know is that 79 children have gone missing from this one hotel in Brighton and never been seen again. And that's one hotel. We know this isn't the only hotel. So the numbers that are coming out are probably very, very under, you know, below what's actually happening here, the number of children that are going missing. So traffickers know the location of these hotels. Kids are being taken there when they arrive in the UK. They are traumatized and alone and they don't know what's happening to them. And traffickers are showing up, waiting outside and taking them. And some of these kids are being taken off and never seen again. And from an anti-trafficking point of view, we have a really good idea of what's happening to these kids because we have seen it happen again and again and again. They are being taken and they are being exploited either um, in criminal situations. So one of the most common situations we end up dealing with is children who are forced to work in cannabis farms. So these are residential houses that are taken over and converted into cannabis grow houses and children are forced to stay in those houses and cultivate the plants. So they do the watering, the management of light systems is extremely dangerous and the children are horrifically abused by their traffickers. We we know that, um, you know, physical abuse, beatings, we know sexual abuse is really common. All of these methods that are used of controlling these children and keeping them there. And the kind of the the really shocking part for us is is how often it's reported to us that the traffickers use government policy and rhetoric as a method of control. So, as was noted in the article with the Guardian, one of the things that traffickers are saying to pe- to children is, if you stay in the hotel and you stay under the care of the government, you're going to get sent to Rwanda. Or, you know, you got um, Robert Jenrick the other day saying, you know, we're looking to to find the Albanians, detain them, put them on coaches, take them to the airport, get them the return to Tirana. There's no quicker way to keep an Albanian child under your under your control than to tell them if you come forward, if you try going to the police, if you try going to social services and telling them what happened to you, you're going to be on that plane. You're going to be one of those Albanians that they're looking to round up and get deported. So government rhetoric and government policy not just in terms of putting the children in the hotel in the first place, but also the things they're saying publicly and the policies they're enforcing more widely around immigration are just making this situation worse and worse and worse. And the impact on these children is, I know, I know we sort of, you said, you know, we're going to try and not bum people out too much, but ultimately this is really, really horrifying stuff. So, I mean, the the rhetoric, as you say, of the government is that they're taking on the evil trafficking gangs. So it's in a sense when, you know, for example, they talk about 
um, Rwanda, the whole nature of their rhetoric is to tr they try and give a hum they hu kind of a, a humane kind of rationale for what they're doing, which is mm. uh, these are vulnerable people being exploited and we're somehow coming to their rescue. But this is this isn't tackling these evil trafficking gangs, as, as they put it. No, if, if anything, they're, they're making it worse. The, the Home Office right now is enabling trafficking to get worse and worse and worse because every time one of these policies is announced, our young people are telling us the, tra the traffickers are rubbing their hands with glee. The Rwanda policy was a gift because they can use it as a method of control. Don't come forward, they'll send you to Rwanda. And because the Home Office refuses to see sense on so many issues, like setting up processing centres in France to be able to bring people over safely, like, you know, allowing children or allowing anyone to apply for visas to be able to come legally to be reunited with family when they've got family members here, you know, things like the Rwanda policy, all of it strengthens the control that the traffickers have. Nothing is more powerful when it comes to controlling victims of trafficking than the immigration system. Traffickers will tell people you're going to be deported. You know, um, children who are forced into criminal exploitation, it's often if you come forward, if the police find you, you'll be arrested, you'll be put in prison and then you'll be deported. We're talking here, obviously, about this one hotel, but how widespread is this? How many do you think children are we talking? What kind of numbers? In so we don't know exactly how many hotels there are because the Home Office has been really, really opaque on this. We Lots of freedom of information requests and things have been put in, but there's no, no one has a good sense of just how many hotels are being run. So the stats that have been reported are that as of October, 222 children were reported as missing from home office run hotels. And what I also want to point out is this is just children who've been accepted as children and placed in hotels. The other issue that's coming up a lot at the moment is children arriving at port and being incorrectly age assessed. So they'll say I'm 16, 17 years old officials at port will say no you're not you're 23 you're 24 and those children are also shoved in hotels but they're shoved in adult asylum accommodation hotels so they are in hotels alongside unknown adults and they are also extremely vulnerable so the numbers we're seeing are you know 136 went missing from this hotel in brighton 79 have never been found 222 are missing from the home office those numbers in and of themselves are staggering but what's more terrifying is that they are just the tip of the iceberg. And the Home Office has, it doesn't have any mandate to be doing this. The Home Office has never had a mandate to care for children. It's, it, it falls to the Department for Education. So it should be happening. If Kent County Council isn't capable of taking care of the children coming into its authority area, there's a system called the National Transfer Scheme that is set up, which spreads the load across the country so other local authorities can volunteer to take these children in. Now, any decisions relating to the care of children should sit with the Department for Education. What for some reason is happening with unaccompanied asylum seeking children is decisions about their care have been pushed over to the Home Office. And no one can entirely, no one's entirely sure about how this has happened, how it's legal. It, I mean, it, it's not, ultimately, it's not lawful for this to be happening. Um, and, and we've all written, you know, repeatedly to the Department for Education and said, why are you allowing this to happen? Why are you allowing the department responsible for immigration enforcement to be controlling uh, decision making around care for children? But that is what's happening. The Home Office is opening these hotels everywhere. They're shoving kids into adult asylum hotels or they're shoving them into hotels on their own. They're deeply, deeply traumatised. That that journey across the channel, I, I think... 
there's been so much about it, so much rhetoric. So, you know, you see the images on the news. What I don't think the majority of people truly grasp is how terrifying it is. People know, whilst they're making that journey, they know that they could die. And, and often they are very close to dying. It is freezing cold. A lot of people who make that journey can't swim. So there's always the risk that, you know, the boat's going to go down and they're going to drown, which we have seen happen. People are getting off those boats. Children are getting off those boats and they are deeply traumatized. They are absolutely terrified. And everybody, you know, terrified children don't make safe decisions. They can't make safe decisions for themselves. And it's the responsibility of the professionals and adults in this country to look after them. And we're not doing that. Before we talk, I mean, you've been talking there quite clearly about what can be done to, to prevent the, this horror, but, we'll, but just just I'll ask you a bit more on that. But in terms of just in terms of finding these children, what hope is there in terms of, for example, directly these children who've, who've, dis, who've been taken from this hotel? It's, it's really hard because the response from all agencies has been really underwhelming. You know, they... I think the article in The Guardian kind of highlighted it really well. You know, they asked Brighton and Hove Council for a comment. They referred them to the police. They asked the police for a comment. They referred to the Home Office. Asked the Home Office, they referred them back to Brighton Council. You know, it's that Spider-Man meme. Everyone's pointing at each other and saying, well, it's you. So no one has taken adequate responsibility for finding these children. In my experience of these children being found, the most likely um, way they will be found is either, best case scenario, some of them have run away to be with their families and they will pop up, you know, in the asylum system when they get solicitors and claim asylum and it turns out, you know, they'd run away to live with the family, which they never would have had to do if they had a safe way to get here. The alternative is these children will be found when they're arrested and they will be arrested for working undocumented, um, again, in car washes, in restaurants, in nail bars, or they will be arrested because they're being criminally exploited. They'll be found in cannabis houses. They'll be found in cars with, you know, thousands of pounds in cash and piles of cocaine on them. And what's often happening is the children themselves are then being criminalized. They're being sent to prison for cannabis cultivation, for cocaine dealing, um, for things that they were forced to do that they didn't have a choice in because often they've got debts hanging over them. One of the ways that gangs control these children is a lot of kids want to leave their countries. A lot of these kids are trafficked from places they want to leave, from Albania, from Vietnam, from Eritrea, places like that. They have no legal way of getting to the UK. And so traffickers pick them up along the way and they say to them, we will get you to England, but the cost of the journey is 20, 25,000 pounds. And these kids are like, I haven't got that kind of money. And the traffickers offer to front them the money and say, we'll get you to England. You will work for us once you're there and you'll get us back. And the kids don't actually know what they're going to be doing. They just hear, you know, you're going to work for us. And they think, okay, for example, with Albanian young people, it's really common that traffickers will say to them, we work in construction. The UK needs houses. You'll help us build them, you know, and you'll make the money to pay us back. But once they get here, they are then violently assaulted. They are beaten. They are threatened. And they are told, you have to do everything we say to pay off your debts or we will go back to your home country and we'll kill your entire family. And these kids are being kept under control in that way. And then finally, they're found, they're arrested and they're sent to prison over things that they were forced to do. And we should have mechanisms within our laws to prevent that from happening. But at the moment, sadly, all of those mechanisms are failing. In terms of some, I mean, you, you kind of made a lot of this clear, but in terms of the kind of key demands that people should be focusing on, what are the kind of key mm -hmm. things right now? Right now, it's end the practice of the use of hotels. That needs to end immediately. Um, the national transfer scheme needs to be taken away from the Home Office 
all decisions relating to the care of children need to be taken away from the Home Office and put with the Department for Education where they belong. So the National Transfer Scheme needs to go over to the DOV. Home Office needs to shut down these hotels. Kids need to be in care where they belong. We need safe routes for people to be able to get here, for children to be able to get here reunite with their families to not have to fall victim to these traffickers. There should be an immediate inquiry into how this has been allowed to happen and also how all of the warnings were ignored for so long. You know, we we made very, very clear that this was going to happen and the Home Office ignored every single warning they were given and there needs to be an inquiry into how that was allowed to happen immediately. David Barato asked, why isn't the government being taken to court over this? That's a really good question. Um, and I don't know the answer. I think because it's quite it's quite complicated. So one of the uh, things that could have been done, for example, is the local authorities that have these hotels, for example, Brighton and Hove Council, uh, they could apply for permission to go to judicial review over the decision for, of the Home Office to open these hotels. The problem is it's extremely costly. It's extremely lengthy and there's no guarantee that it will work. And I think What's happening in in children's social care, much like the NHS, the you know you you know utilities, everything. The system has collapsed. It's not collapsing; it has collapsed. It is broken at this point, to the point where people are just kind of trying to get on with it. There's a lot of complicity in this kind of thing because social workers, much like nurses, doctors, everyone else, are completely overwhelmed and overworked, and a lot of people are just kind of wanting to get on with the job and do the best they can without examining the wider systemic issues so i would love to see the government get taken to court over this i'm not sure honestly why it hasn't happened yet there have been a couple of challenges um kent county council and detention action um tried to take the home office to court over this um and if i remember correctly they actually run successful lauren it's really disturbing and horrifying stuff to be honest with you um but it's really good that you've actually been able to talk obviously about practical things which people need to be loudly demanding and agitating for but um what a damning indictment of both this government and the society that we currently have that some of the world's most mm. vulnerable kids um that this is the fate imposed upon them for completely needless reasons which is to by a government which is intentionally stoking up bigotry um and and with with these sorts of catastrophic consequences i mean it's it's mm. absolutely horrible if I could um, add one thing on the end, these, we are yeah, talking about children. These these are these are children we're talking about, um, and they are terrified. And what we're hearing from young people we support over and over and over again is is just how bad it is and how much control traffickers have over them at the moment, and how terrified. And there are there are weeks when my job is just trying desperately to hold on to these kids and stop them from running away and running to their traffickers because of how bad it's gotten. Um, and I'm. Yeah, I'm sorry I wasn't able to give a more cheerful view, but that is yeah. that is unfortunately the reality that we're we're working with at the moment. I mean, what what obviously incredible work that that, that you do in, in 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 frankly near impossible circumstances. Um, but honestly, I can't thank you enough. And I can just reading the comments, people are absolutely horrified. But also, this is this is news to people. I think it's really important people are aware just how mm. gruesome the, the the current situation is about some of the most vulnerable children on earth and the way they're treated in the, in this country and and because of because of government policy. Um, it's just mm. absolutely horrifying. Um, yeah, Lauren, honestly, thank you so, so much. Do follow, lo, lo, follow Lauren Starkey on social media. What's your Twitter address? Sorry, I should have checked that. Yeah. 
so, uh, so I'm Lauren H. Starkey, but you can also follow the organization I work for. It's called Love 146, yep. and we are at Love 146 UK. Great, everyone. So Love 146 UK. Do go and follow that if you're watching or listening to this. Lauren, thanks so much again. Thanks for the incredible um, description of this just horrible situation, but but also for, for talking practically about what needs to be done. So thanks so much for joining us at such short notice. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Lots of love. Um, we're always lucky to have such brilliant guests who can just speak so eloquently about often very complicated subjects in a way which I think is very accessible. Um, lots of grim things there today, but that's the world we live in. Um, but the fact that there are so many people who are courageously fighting, I think, gives us some hope in these difficult times. Um, thank you so much, everybody, for joining us as ever. It's been um, a privilege and an honour as always. Um, we'll be here throughout the week with videos and interviews and um, got a lot i asked people on patreon for interview suggestions and i got a load of them <laughs> um but we did we started with hajin chang uh who talked uh about comparing um terrible economics with bad food so that was quite fun um but we've got loads to come and we're going to start our documentaries again um which is going to be good. And we'll do videos each day, general polemics, shareable videos. I should just say that our reach is, is very, very big um, at the moment. We've um, reaching about on YouTube, about a million and a half a month and on Facebook, about a couple of million. It depends how you define that to be fair. Um, Instagram, hundreds of thousands um, on the podcast as well. So we'll just read, and each of those is quite interesting. Often have quite different demographics. Like a lot of my Instagram followers are younger. A lot of my Facebook, I'm not general. I'm just, I know the different age groups use different, use all platforms. But on Instagram, they tend to be younger, and Facebook tends to be older. So it's just good to reach different demographics. Um, but we are reaching lots and lots of people, which is very, very, very important because obviously, um, and I what's interesting is I read the comments. A lot of them, I don't read all the comments because we get thousands of comments on the different platforms. But it's interesting because we're reaching people who are not political or regard themselves as left-wing. I mean, some of them are hostile. <laughs> I'm not sure whether they're being convinced. <laughs> but I think a lot of them are people who just don't know much about a particular issue um, they've heard about in the media. And so we have, for example, trans people talking uh, about what's actually in the law, about the reality of being trans, about what's happening to trans people. And um, when we talk to, for example, this brilliant expert, um, and social workers on the ground about what's happening to these extremely vulnerable children, where we talk to tax experts, um, you know, economists, uh, campaigners, then we're, we're reaching people about issues which are either neglected or distorted by the coverage that people get in the mainstream media. Anyway, you make all that possible on patreon.com forward slash 84 So do thank you for that. Um, uh, but yeah, it's great that we're reaching more people than ever. That's thanks to you. And we'll be doing, as I said, more documentaries and so on in that spirit. Great. I'm going to go to the gym, like the massive basic gay that I am. Uh, do press like on Facebook and YouTube. Sorry, and YouTube. And when you press subscribe on YouTube, a little ask for you all, do press the notification bell so you get the video alerts on your phone. That's That would be helpful. Do that, please. But yeah, do press like. It's good for the algorithm. If you're watching after the show, do pre, you know, please leave comments. I read through the comments. It's also good for the algorithm. And um, so, yeah, uh, that's it, I suppose. Uh, lots of love, everyone. I'll see you tomorrow in some form. Take care of yourselves. Bye.
Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.